think what's really hard about this business in particular is, I think what makes you good at it is being hopefully empathetic and sensitive and imaginative. But then what makes it really, really hard is when you've tried to be all of those things and then somebody, you know, you have to have a thick skin because inevitably you will be told you are wrong or you are bad or not good enough all the time. So it's like, how do you kind of protect that soft middle, which makes you good at it, but also have a thick enough protector outside of it so you don't just completely crumble and sort of lose your sense of self or your sense of worth. Welcome back to Nothing Shines Like Dirt, episode 69. I'm Elise Siebert. And I'm Leslie Shannon. Today, we are talking to writer-director Sarah Hawk. We discuss writing for the hit CBS show, Bull, Taking Notes, and The, the Great, Great British, British Baking, Baking Show. Aspects and then a it's lot. a mix. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that. I see that. Yeah. But not fully, but like some of the thing, And then just like the way that they people talk around things. I don't know. But it's funny how much geographically it can really um, connect you in that way. Um, and just well, like being sp- it's spe- it's so specific. And when you're specific, like that's when people like if you do this general painting on yeah. of something, it doesn't work. Well, it's like I think it's an August Wilson quote, but it's like specificity is the key to universality. Because again, like while I haven't watched Sharp Objects, but, well, I'm certainly not from the South. My grandmother was from a Baptist from a small town in western New York that was super-duper poor and grew up crazy poor and was not a very nice person and all these sort of things. And you see some of this stuff and you're like, the details are different, but, like, who that character is comes from a similar place, so I can understand it. And then the things that are, are very different, like, with that cultural specificity are what gives it a sense of place and makes it feel interesting to me because it's different. So, Yeah, yeah. It is. Um, So where are you from? I grew up um, just outside of Chicago in Oak Park, Illinois, famous for, um, there's like more Frank Lloyd Wright houses per square foot than like anywhere else because he lived there. (laughs) My dad used to, every time somebody came to town, we'd have to go on the home and studio tour. So when I was about eight, I think I could have given that tour. Um, And also also famous for um, Ernest Hemingway, grew up there. And recently Showtime just did a like a limited series last year where they picked it up. Um, I can't remember the filmmaker's name, the guy who did, I believe, Hoop Dreams as well, called America to Me, which is sort of about the high school I went to or didn't go to because I ditched a lot of high school. But yeah, <laughs> so outside of Chicago is where I grew up. So you ditched a lot of high school. That's really interesting. I love that. Um, I was the complete opposite of that. Um, but what did you enjoy English in school? I was funny. I was like a very, very type A perfectionist kid until I hit this point, like, you know, at the end of my freshman year of high school, beginning of my sophomore year, where I think I just got pretty depressed and I'd had some of those issues a little bit earlier and then was just kind of like, this whole thing is bullshit, you know, and right. then just kind of stopped going. So I always loved reading and I would still read the books and stuff like that we were supposed to for class. Just never when they wanted me to. And I would still, and I would like bullshit the papers. Like I still did fine in high school, but it got to a point where I kept, you know, getting caught for ditching. And my mom was like, you either need to get your shit together and find a way to graduate early or something if you hate it so much or you, but you just, or you just need to go to class and suck it up, but you, you can't keep doing this. So I ended up graduating in my junior year because I just hated it. What did you hate about it? Like, um, yeah. 
Again, I think I was a little bit of an asshole <laughs> and a little bit depressed. Yeah, but but, uh, but, the yeah. Sco- but what I find interesting is like we try to school our kids in one way, and that yeah. I think especially for artists isn't good. Like good well, for for creatives. You and know, what's funny about me is I think I'm actually like I'm a good test taker. I'm pretty good. Like I'm one of those people the school system was probably more built for. I think I was a combination of like bored just, and yeah, and also. I just didn't understand why certain things were relevant. Like I remember asking in like pre-calculus or something like, okay, fine. So we use cosine to solve for this, but why? What does it do? What does it mean? And she's like, you don't need to know that. Just do it. And I, it, that drove me nuts. Yeah. And so, I mean, the one thing that didn't, you know, and I think the reason I ended up, you know, I left and ended up going to, you know, theater school for college was theater seemed like the one place that asked questions to me. And from when I was pretty young, my mom always took us to shows. Um, But we started going to Stratford in Ontario, Canada when I was about 12 or 13. And I remember this very distinct moment, like standing at the bottom of the hill festival theater after seeing Man of La Mancha. And I was like, it was so beautiful and also so sad. And I'm like crying. And I had been at that point kind of, I was a gymnast as a kid. I'd quit gymnastics. I was pretty depressed. And I was just remember thinking like this feeling and these questions are like what it's supposed to be about. Mm -hmm. So maybe this is what I want to do and maybe this is what I need to do and this is what's important to me. So that's kind of, I think, what set me on that path. Does asking questions fuel your writing and your art right now? Like is that still like – I hope so. Um, You know, it's funny like – because it does, because you've worked on shows, so it becomes a job too. It becomes yeah. your livelihood. Yeah. So it's like so it's this, a combination. Yeah. I think there's always a way or a hope to find, especially you know, in network television. What I think is great about it is a quantity, right? You're doing a lot, so you you use those score- storytelling skills, but also trying to find within a format what I like to think of as like moments of grace, right? Moments that are a little bit different or a little bit unexpected or while, yes, like the show I work on now is a law show. So there's courtroom scenes and there are those things that you want and those things that on a Monday night at 10 o'clock. You can say what show you work on, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah I work I, on, I think so. Yeah, okay, I just want to make sure. <laughs> you could look on the internet, yeah, so it's I know, out there. I, I work on Bull on CBS. I've had so many actor friends on that show because it's filmed in, in New, New York. York and exactly. I'm like every episode I'm like oh I know that person I know that person. Yeah I didn't work on the first <laughs> season but when I was watching it to catch up I was like oh there's Will oh there's you know like you you're yeah. Because they need so many people. They do I mean and show. that's again I think the blessing of a show like that is you have this a whole new guest cast that has really a lot of work to do every week um, but again like if you're watching a show Monday night at 10 and you like a law show and you're watching for those things, you want to hit those marks. You want to be respectful of that. But within that, if you can look for moments that are human or unexpected or that get at something bigger that we can all relate to, I think that's why, you know, people watch. So that's the stuff you want to do. But I do think you're probably asking the questions in a different way than you are if you're like working at La Mama, you know, yeah. in the East Village. Yeah. Um, where- but I feel like Bull has a lot of psychology to it, a lot of like why do people do what they do Yeah, I, I think we're at our best when we do that and when yeah. like the show is looking into that and stuff yeah. like that. And it's hard because every week you don't want to be like, well, here's this new psychological condition, you know, because then that's gets a little hooey at a certain point. But, but yeah, I think ultimately, hopefully – storytelling in general it's what we're talking about like the idea of specificity and that makes it relatable to everybody else so for sure 
what is sitting down in a writer's room like for people that have never done that before? Oh, yeah. Um, I think – so I – this is my third year on Bull. It was my first um, job staffed as a writer. So I've been a writer on the show for three years. Before that, though, I was a writer's assistant in two rooms and a writer's PA. So I'm just saying that because every room is definitely a little different. And how it's run and how present the showrunner is or isn't is always different. But it's basically, you know, at its best, a lot of people or a medium amount of people. <laughs> I haven't been in a giant room ever. But sitting around and trying to solve a problem. And and I think everybody comes at solving the problem a little differently. I think there are some people that come at it structurally, and there are some people that come at it from a character standpoint. And depending on your show, you know, you might arc out like, oh, this is what we want this character to go through this season. Or a show like Bull where, you know, we've got to do 23, and we start shooting the first one in, like, four weeks. Okay, cool. Like, what's the case? And then how do we layer on the, the character stuff on top of the case once we come up with that idea? But it it really um, depends. But, yeah, at best, it's, it's problem solving. It's group problem solving. And sometimes that definitely leads to, like, well, I had this experience once where this, and so what if it were this? So there is this level of trust, hopefully, because you do kind of have to reflect on your own personal experience because you want it to be real, you know? Well, it goes back to that helps you be specific. Specific, right? exactly. If, if it's based off of something that, even even not an exact event, but the emotion of something that's happened to you. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, like, when you're working on the show, are you able to still work on your own stuff, or is it kind of, like, I'm sure that balance is always like the pendulum swinging back. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, I haven't figured it out in a way that's like quite as much as I would like. Again, because we do um, 22 or 23 episodes, so it's a big chunk. But definitely I try to, you know, a little bit. And then you do have hiatus, which is you're always like, is it hiatus or am I unemployed? Like, is the show coming back? What's going on? <laughs> um, but television. Television, the joys. <laughs> But it's like a stable gig and not a stable gig exactly. all at the same time. Well, it's sort of like, well, it's as stable as it's going to get, but that doesn't mean anything, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> but I always think of like, I think Jim is Jim Carrey's story. Like his dad wanted to be like loved comedy, but was like, that's not how you take care of a family. So became an accountant and then got laid off from that and couldn't find a job for years. And he's like, we were in the same place and he was miserable because he hated being an accountant. So you're like, okay. So there is no such thing as stability, I guess. Um, but yeah, so I try to, but it, it takes a little longer, um, you know, and on my particular show, because the ideas for episodes usually start from like, what is the case going to be? Because that's the narrative engine, even when, you know, you're, you're not the one whose episode you're breaking, you are reading and trying to come up with some of that stuff. So for me, it's been a little harder, but I work with I think some people who are better at it, and I do try and do it. I just don't. I'm not as fast mm -hmm. at doing my own stuff as maybe I'd hope to be. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a lot. You're outputting a lot during the day, and then yeah, you know. and then at night you just yeah. want to watch cooking shows. <laughs> if you just want to watch the Great British Baking Show, a hundred percent. Are all... those not okay? We're gonna sidetrack. Yeah, <laughs> like, Elise is like really good at keeping on us on task, and I'm like, let's talk about wife. Um, that sh those people on the show, oh. 
They warm my heart, and it also oh. just makes me want to eat all the me, sweets. Well, it's so funny too because I don't even have a big sweet tooth, so I'm not. And desserts are not my favorite, so I don't even know why I'm so obsessed with it. It's because but, the people are amazing, they're, and they're so nice, and they care about each other so much, and it's so like not an American style reality show. Oh, not yeah. yet oh. seen it, but yeah. Yeah. I know. Elise, you should. Netflix. Like even even if you're if you're ever a in treat. like a poopy mood, like if you're yeah, like you're like I'm on. really sad right now, or I just feel poopy about the world, turn on that damn show. Yeah. It watch gives you it, hope. it yeah. and because they're so and they all have the, like the most lovely amazing accents and yeah. i just i'm like every <laughs> and so my husband and i when we watch it the beginning of the the season i'm always like all right we pick who we think's gonna win oh i like and this. so it's like a competition yeah. too because i mean why not mm-hmm. um but it, i like obsess about the accents. so sorry now that we have completely sidetracked away from the conversation but it is Television. It's television, and technically, it's, and I not again, scripted. But I think it's like not overproduced in the way that we overproduce some American reality shows. Because, and he doesn't need to be because there's like lovely people, and you can have a common goal, and we can root for them without having to add like weird extra like confessional booth in which they say I secretly hate this person, like because they don't. You yeah, know? <laughs> and it's or lovely. They don't add in layers of drama, <laughs> exactly, or where they're asking you stuff. And they take those answers and put them with different exactly. questions. Yeah. And yeah. Like a girlfriend of mine who is um, a great actress, her husband flips houses and they were like, oh, it'd be cool, you know, to do, I don't even know what, she, if it was HGTV or something, but like one of those flip a house shows or whatever. And they ended up walking because they were like the stuff, hey, she's like, it wasn't safe. Like the stuff they make you do because she's like, I know how a union works and this is wrong and no, but also like, yeah, the stuff they make you say and they set you up and then they put words in your mouth and she was like, yeah. So people well, that and it's like those producers, all they're trying to do is get the show to be a hit so that they can keep like do what yeah. they like I I I don't think many people want to be doing that show. You know, well, like I feel like weird. a lot of them have other goals too for yeah. stuff and then well, and it's one thing if you're like doing the bachelor, I think everybody that goes on to do it kind of knows what they're signing up for at this stage. They should. But you think <laughs> if it's like a home repair show, like why do we have to be like throwing shade? Like everyone right. just wants to see the nice fireplace redone. Exactly. Like, like yeah. they want to dream about redoing their house exactly. while they're watching it. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, now that we've done that, so with the shows that you've done, you've specifically have a crime show and the other one was sci-fi. One of them was sci-fi, correct? Um, or yes, yeah, so I worked on the last show. I was a writer's assistant, but I got to write an episode and yeah, that had a, I guess a sci-fi element because there was a, an epidemic that wasn't real. Um, but that they based and they worked a lot with the Navy to try and make, you know, that element of it as accurate as possible. Like there were Navy SEAL consultants. There was always a Navy person on set. Um, the stunt coordinator was an ex-Navy SEAL, really cool guy. So like that was a very, very neat thing. Like the first frame of television I ever wrote that was shot, um, an amazing director, Jennifer Lynch, directed the episode I did as a writer's assistant, but they block shoot or they did block shoot um, on, you know, destroyers in San Diego and they hadn't shot my episode yet, but they took some stuff to get exteriors. And so I was like, somehow like on a ship and this really amazing director was like directing, you know, some great actor. And I'm like, what is happening? This is so cool. You know, um, that sounds awesome. Do you, your backgrounds in theater, do you miss theater or do you feel like with film, like there's, you can dig deeper? Oh, I, I totally miss theater. Um, and I think what I miss about it and what is great 
and you can, I think, very much have this in film and television. I haven't had it as much just given the like the show I work on now shoots in New York and we don't go to set for every episode, for example. So um, what I love about theater is the intimacy, not just of the, the doing of it, but of the making of it. Like even if you're doing a really working on a really big show, there's a, a smaller number of people and a smaller number of things. And it's we're all in a room trying to make this happen. And I think the reality of the energy in the room is something that nothing else has but theater. That's why I think whenever people are like, the theater is dead, I'm like, it's not though. Because I think what <laughs> makes it stay is at the end of the day, no other form has that. No other form has, like sound is energy and it's literally energy coming from one and if you guys are on stage talking to each other and I'm in the audience, I, I can feel the energy between the two of you. And like that, nothing else has that in the same way. And I think you can expand and tell, you know, different kinds of stories in, in television and film. And I think part of the reason I got into television is more people see it. And also I think more people, and when I left, I left New York a long time ago now. Um, and I think this is changing, which is good, but audiences for the theater in New York were very homogenous. And I felt like a lot of the storytellers were very homogenous and that's a, a, obviously a broad overstatement, but like, and hopefully that's starting to change, but television just on the, the nature of it seemed like, it's free to watch for the most part or relatively cheap. So more people have access to it. So I think they have ups and downs, but I, I love the theater and I think there's a family and a community there that'll never go away. The flip of that is I, you know, television is a business, film is a business, theater is also a business. And I think there are a lot of people that are like, it was so pure back when we just did theater. I'm like, no, it wasn't. You're just, they're still, still putting butts in seats. They're still, <laughs> they're still stunt casting. They're still picking the season. They're still, you know, exactly subscribers and butts and seats and all of that. It's just on a different scale of money, <laughs> a yeah. different scale of like corporate oversight. Yeah. But I mean, I think what Broadway has produced in the last few years shows that it's very, getting butts and seats and what people know. I mean, a lot of the musicals and stuff are remakes of movies that mm -hmm. people know. And Yeah, I mean, and, and then the flip of that is like you have, um, you know, I didn't get to see it when it was off Broadway, but heard incredible things. And now like Slave Play is moving to Broadway. And this, um, you know, the retelling of Oklahoma that's on Broadway right now, like is very different. And I think there's room for both. And I think Broadway should be a big tent. Um, I just think when we only have... The Share Show, which I've heard is a delight. I didn't see it, but like, so I'm not trying to throw shade at the Share Show, but like the Share Show and something like that came from, you know, off Broadway and gets to move and gets to have that bigger audience. I think accommodation is important. It is, a, it needs to be. Um, I think that it's definitely changed over the time because we both came from New York. Um, so I lived there for, we both lived there for 10 years. Um, and so, um, I did theater first. That's what I started with. Yeah. That was my first love. Um, and uh, as far as acting goes. Um, and yeah, it, it is with those big theaters, a lot of times it's just overhead cost is so expensive. So and so, and it just continues to go up and up and up and up mm -hmm. and up. And as that happens, then it, it takes away some of the creativity unless you have like some amazingly generous benefactor who's like, I just want this to get made. And so I think that's one of the problems as to why not more of that exists in the way that, sure. I mean, you can find that stuff off Broadway and off, off Broadway. But exactly. But like, is that a way to sustain when you're making that a career? And, and New York is so exorbitantly expensive. Like I lived in New York for about four and a half years, but I left in 2009. So I haven't lived there in a decade. Um, and yeah, so things are changing. But at the end of the day, the changes, I think, 
hopefully don't aren't just intermittent reinforcement are like look at these little things that happen but mostly yeah because it, it has to be a business and New York's like it's just crazy expensive yeah uh-huh. what is your advice for people who are just starting out writing and want to get to like, like a show in a writer's room well, so I will pass on the first bit of advice. And actually, Peter Hedges, who's an amazing writer and director, um, he went, you know, at different times, but to my school. And when I was in college, his film Pieces of April, that was the first, I believe the first he'd written, you know, What's Eating Gilbert Grape and a bunch of other movies, but that was the first movie he directed. And he came back to North Carolina School of the Arts and premiered it. And we heard him speak and... When I graduated, I just was really kind of inspired by him and asked the dean of the school if I could like email him. And I was like, I just moved to New York. I'm interested in writing. And he had me come to his office and we had like Tasty Delight. That's how I just aged myself. But like when (laughs) Tasty Delight was a really big deal. Um, But he said, you know, I started writing plays for my friends. And his friends were Mary Louise Parker and Joe Montello and this, you know, great group of people. But he's like, make work for your friends. And so in New York, I wrote a lot of very earnest, um, very mediocre plays written by someone in their early 20s, but for your friends. And I directed them and you kind of start getting the let out that way. And what for me, um, a series of sort of life events, but what led me into television was both, I was like, it'd be great to have health insurance one day. And, <laughs> but, and also, you know, it's a longer form of storytelling. And I actually... I read this book and I was like, this is amazing. It's too big to be a play and it's too big to be a movie. Like the story happens on so many levels. Like I'd want to explore that over time. And that a few years later ended up being the inspiration point for the first pilot I ever wrote. But for television, I think figuring out it is a format just like everything else. And for me, when I first came out here, you know, I, I had found like Speaking of Aaron Sorkin, I think the pilot of the West Wing script was like online. And so I used that as a formatting thing. And then I came out here and the Writers Guild Foundation has a library in the Writers Guild building. You don't have to be a member to go. Um, It's free. You just like check your bag and they have so many scripts and just kind of breaking down like, oh, I love Breaking Bad. Oh, this is what a script for Breaking Bad looks like. This is the tone of how they write it. This is the structure. And I kind of taught myself how to write them that way. Um... But I think the best way first is just to write and to write a bunch. And I have written some real bad pilots, (laughs) real bad that nobody ever needs to see again. Like I have like one friend who's read them and bless her heart, she's still my friend. But, um, (laughs) but in getting familiar, you know, getting familiar with it and what's nice about writing as opposed to acting or directing is you can do it by yourself. Like you can do it in your bedroom, which is kind of why like I love directing and I want to do it again and more in the future. But I was like, if I can work on getting good at this thing for a while, I can do it. And then it's once you have something that feels like it represents who you are as a writer and the kinds of stories you think you can tell, then just showing it to your friends and being like, hey, do you like this? Do you like this? And, you know, somebody send a thing to like his manager and his manager didn't end up doing it, but sent it to an exec and she came up with a manager and then his brother's manager became my first manager. It's all really annoyingly nebulous. But I think the bottom line is like having something on the page that you're like, this is me. Mm-hmm. And then when you get notes on that, trying to take the note behind the note and going like, oh, okay, I'm writing a different kind of writing for me. So this is how I take that note to be the story I want it to, to be and, and to tell. 
Absolutely. That's great advice. <laughs> I think that's hard to take the note behind the note, but it's so, I think for writing and acting and anything really, it's like, okay, they weren't feeling something here. What, mm-hmm. how? Well, and, and for me, and like, it's a little like how I try and trick myself because I think we're all, I think what's really hard about this business in particular is, I think what makes you good at it is being hopefully empathetic and sensitive and imaginative but then what makes it really, really hard is when you've tried to be all of those things and then somebody, you know, you have to have a thick skin because inevitably you will be told you are wrong or you are bad or not good enough all the time. So it's like how do you kind of protect that soft middle which makes you good at it but also have a thick enough protector outside of it so you don't just completely crumble and sort of lose your sense of self or your sense of worth. And for me – Writing-wise, with that first script that was about something I really care about, um, you know, a friend set me up with a producer, and he's like, nothing happens in this thing. And I'm coming from theater and, like, you know, acting school and all that. I'm like, well, no, because, like, in the relationship, and he's like, no, like, literally, though, it's television. Nothing happens till page 52. That's death. And he <laughs> and it was a script about journalists, and he said to me, he's like, you know, the problem with journalist stories is journalists are passive. They watch and they report. And and I couldn't form the thought in the room, but but I thought about it because I was like, I know there's a good story here. I clearly haven't told it right yet. And then I emailed him and I was like, the kinds of journalists that this is modeled on, and I listed a few, like they're not people that wait. They go find, like they investigate, they seek, they're going out there. And, he, you know, so if I haven't shown that yet, I haven't done my job yet. But what made it easy to not hear, you're bad at writing, you're, you can't be a television writer, was to say, I've done research on Lindsay Dario and Nicholas Kristoff and all of these, I know, yeah. right? <laughs> but on all of these people I really respect, they're not that. How do I tell their story better? And just for me making it not about me and being like, put it in front of me and aim for that other thing outside of me really helped, you know, because you're going to have to write a bajillion drafts of everything. So making it about something that interests you and not making it like this is a personal wound was a very helpful well, way. Well, I think too it's like also realizing when something's a strong note to make you go back and investigate mm-hmm. and also like, oh, this wasn't their taste yes. or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I mean there are other notes. Um, again, and sometimes, you know, especially if it's your thing and they're not your boss – then you're like, okay, I don't agree with that. And I'm trying to figure out what the note is behind it. And I can't quite, all. I'm going to set it aside for right now. It's different if it's like, if you're working on a television show and it's your job to like make, you know, the showrunner or the studio in the network happy, find a way to take the note because that's, right? that's what they're literally <laughs> paying live, you to do. Um, right yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had a question and it just escaped my that's mind. Okay. I was going to ask you, how did you transition from an actress into a writer? Um, so it was interesting. So I, yeah, I originally went to school as an actor and at University of North Carolina School of the Arts at I the feel time. Like I've met so many people who have gone to school there <laughs> and here. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot. I yeah. think the school now more, I think, spits people out on both coasts. When I went there, it was still very much kind of everyone went to New York. But then over time, I think people are like, I would like to not live in a shoebox and again, maybe one day have healthcare. <laughs> so people <laughs> matriculate. I mean, I still have many dear friends in New York um, and I spend too much money going back to see them, but that's a separate story. Um, I went to New York three times this summer, so I hear you. On yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I went to school as an actor. I was pretty young. Like I, 
left for school like two months after my 17th birthday. And I think I had also done a lot of theater in public school and some theater in Chicago, but was sort of like, do I deserve to be here? So I was thinking it was, you know, pretty insecure. And it was, but it was a great program. But at the end of my second year, um, Gerald Friedman was the dean of the program at the time, you know, who's a very sort of noted director. He was the first. He was like Jerome Robbins' assistant on the original West Side Story. Like he's been doing this forever. And they invited me into the directing program. And the directing program at that school at the time, I don't know if it's changed a lot or not, but you still do all of the acting and singing and dancing and all and movement courses. And then in addition, you did directing workshops with Gerald and design classes. And I remember thinking, you know, at the time I was sad because I was like, does this mean I'm not a good enough actor? Does this mean, you know, I'm not mature enough to right. do this work? Do, why Why couldn't it be like, oh, they see something in me and direct you? Why do we do that to I ourselves? don't know. <laughs> so I was like, when you're like, why can't it be this? I'm, I'm like, because my brain is broken. I don't know. <laughs> the irony of it is, but I remember thinking to myself, like, this is a program run by Gerald Friedman. I'm going to get the most out of this program by the access to him and by also, I think, you know, doing everything this program thinks is what I should be doing. And then at the end of it, I can go be an actor. Like I won't have been in showcase or something, but I can go back to acting if that's what I want. And um, it was very interesting because the second I started sitting on the other side of the table, I realized all the things I was trying to do as an actor in terms of like controlling the scene <laughs> and controlling the play and controlling the thing. And I, I think it made me a much better actor, but it also made me realize like I actually much prefer being on the other side of it. But I... I started writing right around that time, actually, a little before. We had this thing called Intensive Arts where you could – we were on trimesters and there were two weeks where you'd come back between Thanksgiving and Christmas and, like, we had specialty courses and then you could write or direct or dance or people could do whatever they wanted. And that's the first thing I ever wrote was for that and I directed it. And then I just sort of started writing for Intensive Arts. And then when I graduated, I remember saying to myself, I applied for a few fellowships and I was like, if I get – you know, this, I don't even remember what it was, like drama. No, it was like, I don't know, some directing thing. I was like, well, then I'll direct. And there's a Lincoln Center fellowship that if I got it, I could, you know, write a play. And if I got nothing, I was like, maybe I'll audition. And I ended up getting the one where I had access to a theater. And I, that's when I wrote my first play. So writing and directing kind of happened simultaneously for me. And then I got to this point where I was like, I need, I feel like I need to focus there was a, an excursion where I lived overseas for two years, which is a little off track, but not quite. But when I got back, I was sort of like, let me pick a thing so I'm not going in circles and writing I can work on on my own. And so that's kind of when I came out here. How do you get excited about rewriting? Um, hmm. It depends, I would say, on what I'm rewriting. Like if it's something of my own – because I think there's a version every time you write something, even if it's first draft, you're like, great, I did it. I want to be done. Right? <laughs> Yay. That's Never, me. ever, ever going <laughs> to yeah. happen. <laughs> uh-huh. That's me every time. I'm like, because I don't write a lot, but the mm-hmm. things that I have written, I'm like, I did it. I did it. And yeah. then I'm like, oh my God, there's so much more I still have <laughs> yeah. left to do. Yeah. And so when it's on something of my own that like came from my own sort of brain or heart or whatever, I think A the thing to think about with rewriting is I'm not starting from zero this time. And that's a great way to trick yourself. Actually, that's true with whoever the notes came from. Like, 
all right, rewriting is is a little bit more math, right? It's a little bit more strategic about what needs to change, what doesn't need to change. Also, whenever I get notes, I have like a pouty minute, even if they're great notes and I know they're all true. That pouty moment That's of like, it. I'm not done. And then like go to sleep, wake up early the next morning and start <laughs> working again. But if you try and just flip it in your mind as like, this is going to make it better. This is going to make it more interesting than I original thought, than I originally thought it could be. Like if you, again, it's nothing about tricking your brain <laughs> into thinking of it as an opportunity. And if it's for work, especially if there are notes that you're like, oh, I wrote it this way for a reason and maybe I didn't have a chance to explain or they just didn't get it. Taking a step back and hearing the note and then saying, okay, well, maybe this is an opportunity to think about it a way I didn't that could be even cooler at the end. And again, sometimes you just want to be done and it's frustrating. But for me, like those little things to trick yourself into, into being like, oh, and then I could find a thing that's even better than my first thought. Because your first thought is really the best. Sometimes it is if you're, you know, brilliant. But the the great thing about notes, no matter who they come from, is it can give you a new way to think about something. And in giving you a new way to think about it, you can come up with something that you wouldn't have before. Um, so trying to make notes part of your process as opposed to like something they're making me do, I think is helpful. That's really nice. So when, how often in these writer rooms that you've been in, have there been a lot of women? I have been, um, lucky. There have been, in most of the rooms I've been in, you know, as an assistant or as a writer, they've been split female relatively evenly, which has been really cool. Um, the people at the, in the number one and, and number two positions, sometimes in number three and number four have always been men. Um, the exception of one, I guess I worked on one show as an assistant. It was shorter where the number one was a man, but I think the people that were number two technically were women. Like if I think of the hierarchy, but for the most part, so yeah, so it's, I've been lucky in that the splits have been good, which isn't um, something that everyone can say, but I, I there's been w woefully, um, they've been woefully over white rooms, every room I've been in, and with the exception of one, with the exception of one, and and yes, the, the power structure has been more male. How do you think that has affected the rooms in the fact of like, positively, negatively, just in general? <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I mean, I think shows, I mean, I'm, I'm a woman, so I think it's great to have, I think, I think every person in a writer's room brings their own unique set of experiences and what makes a show most interesting is probably having more of a, a diverse set of experiences and, and that can be male, female, and that can be you know, based on sexual orientation or gender identification or, you know, the color of somebody's skin it can also be socioeconomic. It can also be where in the country you came from. I mean, so, and I think it should be all of those things. And I think the more people you have to, to both listen and, ex you know, and be supportive of your way of thinking, but to challenge your way of thinking as well, gives you a more dynamic and representative show. So I think, Especially if your goal is to have a broad audience. Exactly. And and that's where I think there's this weird idea that like, oh, you know, diversity and inclusion means making sure these boxes are checked. And it's like, why don't we look and, – and maybe some people do, but look at it in this more holistic way of like 
it's just going to make the show better. Like, don't you just want to make the show better? And it's not some, oh, burdensome thing you have to figure out because, you know, we live in this time of times. It's like, no, like more voices of more kinds of different experiences are just going to make it better. So I think that's a thing that hopefully, I mean, I think maybe is changing a little, is probably changing much too slowly, hopefully continues to change, you know, more. Um, Because I think it's, important not just from like who works who tells the stories that our society sees should look like the society at large I think that's true um, but it's also just gonna make it better <laughs> like right. don't you want it to be better yeah. right that's such a great way to look at it too because it isn't um, one of the things that I love so much about the fact that there are so many different platforms for television and for stories documentaries everything is that it does give a lot it gives a lot of different voices to a lot of different people. Yeah, absolutely. It does, which is wonderful. But I think the flip of that is it, I don't, I think there's a little bit of a tendency to say like, Oh, a show like this never would have happened. Whatever. It's like, so we gave a very small microphone to this person and gave them a very small budget and they're telling their show. So now on the big networks, we don't systemically have to change who, you know, what it looks like in front of the camera or behind the camera on these giant mass entertainments. And I think that's wrong. Like, yeah. No, <laughs> you're so right. in film with the big budget Absolutely. stuff too. Yeah. I mean, how the Avengers movies get handed to these young, usually white males mm-hmm. and the women directors just aren't given those opportunities. Yeah. I mean, there was a really interesting article and maybe Trevor o, who I don't know, and is probably a great director, but how like the... Le- the Jurassic Park reboots, like he had one kind of breakout Sundance film and then somebody was, and again, it goes to this whole unconscious bias piece because I don't think somebody's like, let's give it to him because he's a dude, not this lady filmmaker who's had three breakout Sundance movies and is still self-funding. <laughs> I don't think, but I think people do. We we identify with people that remind us of ourselves and I think it's like, oh, young guy in a baseball cap made this scrappy, ambitious movie, reminds me of me. I can somebody gave me this break, I'm going to give him this break, he can direct this huge movie. And it's like, cool, but so can she. And just because there's not as many women in that position as executives or agents or, um, you know, giant directors that can do that, I, I, I do think is, you know, is a problem. And saying, I also think, you know, women tend to get promoted more on what they've done and men get promoted on like potential what they could do what they could do Mm -hmm. and you're like so good women Mm -hmm. and then the flip is like the second you know i think there's like this huge movie that a man makes and it doesn't go great but man he was ambitious let's give him another one where it's like i think ladies go to director jail more often so i it's a whole (laughs) (laughs) i love that term do you want to like eventually direct a film or show run a show is that i mean you have like a great background for that i very much would like to do both i mean i would very much like to i mean kind of the goal of the dream would be to you know write a show that gets made and get to be the showrunner and i would like to at that stage you know, be able to direct episodes like Vince Gilligan is a great example of a guy who I think would say maybe I don't know I've never met him I've heard lovely things so I'd love to meet him but um what's up Vince what's up Vince (laughs) I think maybe he'd say he's a writer first because I know he's very protective of writers but he directed many many episodes of Breaking Bad and many episodes of all the shows that he um you know has has created since I believe so 
that model for me would be super cool. I admittedly, on Bull this last year, which was really great, the showrunner and our producing director, I asked them and they let me go out and um, shadow the you know producing director when she was directing an episode of the show, which was really, really great and interesting because theater directing, you know, in terms of working with designers and working with department heads and working with actors, you know, I, I love all that and I'd been on a television set from like the writer's standpoint, but, you know you have to put cameras places and light shots and do all that sort of stuff. You have and to so make all the decisions. All those decisions. Yeah. And then make sure you have everything you need in editing. And and those are things that I'm not familiar with because I didn't go to film school and I haven't been on a lot of film sets. And so I would like to be at the point when the opportunity presents itself, I'm ready from a technical standpoint as well as like an artistic standpoint. That's a really long-winded way of no, answering your question. No, but think, eventually, I yes. I think that's great. I, I would think like that's great. to. And, and I feel like... And again, this is a gross generalization, but I feel like as women, we want to feel more prepared for things to where it's much more of a male energy to be like, well, I mean, I know enough. Let's just do this yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I mean, not that one way is good and one way is bad. Yeah. It's just. Well, and it'd be great. And I th also think some of it's personality and some of it's gender. It'd be great if 100%. I could like walk into a room and just go like, I know this would be a great DP and I can just off the cuff it, but at the end of the day, for me, it's like if you're walking into a room with 300 people that are very good at their job and have been doing it for a very long time, like it's irresponsible and disrespectful to waste everyone's time and to not be prepared and to not know what you're going to do and have a plan. And that doesn't mean then when you have a plan and the really brilliant person standing next to you has been doing this forever is like, why don't we try this as well? Because maybe – like listen and collaborate in that way like that's what I love about the form you know it's not you alone um but yeah I think the best thing I think this is a Gerald Friedman thing about directing that I always remember him saying is like you're the captain of the ship like you have to know where the ship is going um and if you don't and you're just like letting everybody else do it you're just going to sail in circles and and it's going to be a disaster so you have to be the captain and you have to be strong about sort of like the vision and the destination. That being said, you don't know how to be an oarsman better than the oarsmen or I can't remember ship references now, but like the guys <laughs> that hoist the sails and make the ropes and then like those people are all better at that than you. So listen to them, but then make sure everything they're saying is going to help you get where you're going. Mm, I and like that, that, that I think is a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, that's really great. Um, did you have any hard lessons as a writer's assistant or anything that you wish you would have known before being a writer's assistant? Um, I think for me, you know, when I was first, I was a writer's PA, which is, you know, lower than a writer's assistant. You got lunch and order staples. Um, <laughs> Those are necessary things. They're though. very Those are necessary still hard things. jobs to get. No, too. they are. And I was very <laughs> lucky. But I was, I think I was older than some people are when they do it. I was 30 when I had my first job in television as a writer's PA. Um, and I think that served me well in the sense of, um, you know, having more skills and being a bit more mature, which I think I was lucky enough to be in a place where some of the producers on the show then gave me more responsibility, which was really great. But the hardest part for me was like, you know, I've been working in a different form of the same industry for a long time. I'm an adult person. <laughs> I had, you know, I feel very capable in many ways. And my job was to keep my mouth shut. And 
that's, that's hard to do when you know stuff. It's a, it's a little hard and it's a little frustrating, but also a hundred percent do it. Like and this is, I guess, if I have anything useful to say um, about breaking or starting to work in television, it's to write your own stuff at home as much as you can until you have something that represents you on a page, and also be good at your assistant job. Like, don't fuck up lunch. Like, if your job is to get lunch, it seems super annoying that this group of adults that, you know, are very wealthy, that are all making a bajillion times more money than you, are so pissy about whether or not they're like sunflower seeds on their salad. It's annoying. <laughs> Shut up and do it well. Like, do it well, do it well, do it well. Get the staples order well. Like, make sure you're ordering stuff ahead of time. And don't go around saying, I ordered this thing because I think you might want it. Don't talk, put it in the closet so it's there when they need it. Like don't just be good at the job you have because being good at that job is what makes people say, oh, she's great. Let's give her this other thing to do. If you are trying to get the next job the whole time you're doing this job, you're messing up lunch. People get annoyed with you. If you're trying to give people suggestions or notes they didn't ask for, even if you're brilliant and the idea is great, they're tired. They have a whole different set of stressors than you know about. Like, just don't do it. Like, be ready if somebody asks you a question, but just do your job well. And then and then let that turn into other things. And I think that every assistant, like, for me, I think that worked out well in terms of moving up. Again, my current boss, I honestly think, hired me. I would known him two years before I'd been a writer's PA. I think I didn't annoy him when I'm, you know – because I didn't mess up his lunch. And <laughs> he might say other things maybe, but like I think that's part of it. And I think he saw I was competent. And then when I had – when he was doing this show, my manager submitted a writing sample. I think he liked it. And I think that's why he gave me a shot. And then I was good at that shot. But like when you're trying to do the next thing, I don't think it serves you very well. Like even if you're capable of that thing, show them you're capable by being good at the thing you're doing. That's – Great advice, beautiful advice, because I think it would be very easy, especially because, I mean, you were 30 when you got that job, yeah. and it's like, I don't want to feel like I'm 22, but like... And, and I did, and yeah. it kind of sucks, yeah. and you know, you know, it's like an ego, whatever, and I'm like, I've lived alone in a tent and built fires for a thing, and I've worked off Broadway at, like with like big name people and blah, 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 and it's like, but I haven't done this job. And the other important thing I think about being an assistant that, you know, like I said, you don't get paid great. Like I waited tables still on the weekends when I was a writer's PA and part of the time I was a writer's assistant because the pay is not great and the hours are long, but you have access. So you can see what, um, you know, a call sheet looks like. You can see what a one-liner looks like, a day out of days. You can learn what that looks like. You can read every draft that both the writer puts out and that then the, the executive producers do on a rewrite of that. You can see how people's styles are different. You can learn, like, you know, how the blue pages and yellow pages and double blue, like, all this stuff that I didn't know, I had access to. So I just read everything that came across my desk. And, and you know, if you're taking notes on a phone call, that's tedious, but listen to the call, listen to what the conversation is, figure that stuff. Like you have access to the show. And so try and view it as like free grad school as opposed to like a job Paying where I don't get paid school. a lot. Exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. That's really, really great advice because I think so much of the time as creatives, we are always like looking forward, right? Which is not a bad thing. You should totally do that. But finding the way to do it that serves you the best. Well, and a great example of 
I think of what you just said is like if you're a writer's assistant, which um, it was so funny. I, I remember having this moment and I like told my boyfriend at the time, now husband, just like, I've spent so many years of my life taking other people's notes. Because as an assistant director in a theater, you're sitting next to the director taking their notes. And then as the writer's assistant, you're like literally sitting in a room for eight hours a day typing. And it's exhausting and it's not fun and it's tedious. Um, and I was like, one day I won't have to take other people's notes and like <laughs> knock on wood. I'm you know, still hoping I don't have to go back to doing it at some point. I probably will. But, um, but to think about, okay – if I were the writer of this episode, what would I want the notes to look like? What would I want the board to look like? If I were the person that after the showrunner was in and he just did, he or she just did this session with us and I had to go back and take those notes and put them into this script, what would be the clearest and most concise way for me to do it? And, and also talk to whoever the writer is and ask them. But like, think about it in that way instead of going, oh my God, this is so boring. Oh my God, they said this 10 times. Oh my God, I wish I didn't have to do this. Oh my God, no one's ever going to read these notes. Somebody will. The whole staff might not, but probably the person who's writing the episode will. And that little section of what the showrunner said might mean a ton to them. So again, just think about when I'm a writer, what will I want? And do the job that well. So it's like what you said. It's like envision your next step, but not at the expense of your current step. Right. Well, I mean, it's so easy, I think, to get that like need to grow that need to 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 do that you don't you don't you're not taking one thing at a time yeah. right yeah and when you do that you have more of when you are taking one thing at a time you don't have that same sense of overwhelm and then it allows you to be better at what you're doing yeah and again like writers notice like so the showrunner who might be the person you ultimately want to impress because they might ultimately give you a script or give you a job maybe they're not going to read the notes but the person who's writing that script, whether it's a co-EP or whether it's a story editor, like that person might be who the showrunner asks about you or that person might have a show in two years. Like that's separate. Like you just don't know. I mean, your fellow assistants could sell something. Like that's the thing. Like I think people can get very like, okay, here's the power person and here's my play. And like, don't like just be decent, try and be decent. And we all have bad days and that's all fine. But like, and try and be good to the people you're working with on a da the daily basis, A, because that will make your life more pleasant, but B, because you don't know where those people are going to be. And everybody ostensibly over time moves up and moves up together. So, you know, if it's the staff writer and you're like, oh, I could be doing their job and uh, they're younger than me and I'm blah, 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 and they're getting paid 80 times more and I'm frustrated, you can have that moment like we're all human, have it at home and then help that person. Because they might be the person to say, hey, you know how you promoted me last year? Like, promote her or him this year. Yeah, like, it, it's just those are the people that will have your back, I think, in my experience. So much of life, too, I think. And as I get older and older, I realize this more and more is about perspective, right? Yeah. It's about your perspective and expectations and how you approach a situation. Because you can go to that negative place. And again, not that you shouldn't feel the feels, mm -hmm. feel the feels. Yeah. But if you live in that place, then you're blocking yourself from the opportunities that can potentially come in because you're, you're putting up this wall. So I, along those lines, heard a quote relatively recently that I love. And I think it was Danielle Brooks talking to like Trevor Noah about just doing the much ado in the park that I didn't get to see this summer, which makes me sad. But I think Daniel Sullivan, nope, Daniel Sullivan did not direct it. Um, Maybe Kenny Lee. I don't remember who directed it. Guys, look up who there. directed it. <laughs> look up who directed it. It was supposed to be great. I'm really sad I missed it. But she was saying that um, 
part of the reason, you know, she took Beatrice, even though they were like higher paid, like TV things or whatever. She's like, it's the lead. I want to play Beatrice. I, I am classically trained. I also want people to know that, that I can be Beatrice. Like, this is important to me. Like, the whole production sounded awesome. But um, she said the director, who I'm very sad that I'm not remembering off the top of my head right now, <laughs> said to her, comparison is the thief of joy. And I was like, oh. Um, so that I think is a great thing to remember because I think it's hard. I, no matter how successful you are or don't feel you are, right? I think it's easy to say like, "Whoa, but that person's so much further ahead of me and this person is so much whatever. Like, And I'm in a place where I'm like some of the best writers I know like aren't getting to write right now to pay the bills and some not great people you know you see succeeding and you're just like, this is also confusing. But the whole like comparison is the thief – of joy. All you can kind of control is your work and what you do. And it's frustrating. We wish the world was fair or a meritocracy and it isn't always. So it's like, what can I do and how can I still see sort of the blessings around me? Um, and use like those feels to write. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Use that frustration or whatever it is, you know? And also to know that like paths go in different directions. Like, so I left New York um, to go live in Mongolia for two years. And um, I did Peace Corps there. And for varying reasons, it had been a thing I'd thought about. But I was sort of like, if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. But I remember very distinctly at the age of like 20, you know, very old age of 24 when I was thinking about all this, um, thinking if I leave, I'm taking myself out of this business, this industry, this whatever, for two and a half years. And when I come back, everyone I know, everyone I graduated with, everyone I've worked with will be at least two and a half years ahead of me. And, um, you know, I'll have less time to like establish myself before, like if I want to start a family or have kids or all these, like I had all these thoughts and I was like, is it worth it? And <laughs> what's so funny about that is had I not had that experience, the, the script I think that's gotten me work would not be anywhere near the script it is because my life experience and the things I had to say and my perspective wouldn't be there um, in the same way. When you go on meetings as a writer, people want to know, like, quote, unquote, your story, which is really frustrating. Like, just read and then let's talk about the work or let's talk about something else. But it's like auditioning. Like, you're selling yourself and and it's always something to talk about. You know, it's always people like, oh, that's interesting. But it, But beyond just, like it being an interesting thing to talk about, it changed for me very much my perspective and the well of experience I have to draw on and the number of things I understand. Um, and I, and on a strictly technical level, my first manager, which led to my current manager, which led to my current agent, or not agent, because of whatever, well, the yeah. WGA thing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> all that happened because right. of literally like the Peace Corps, I don't remember his title, but like administrative guys, best friend from growing up who'd been in the State Department's husband was a TV writer and he's the first person and I'd never met the guy, but like George gave me his email and I sent him a script and he's like, you're clearly a writer. You need to move to LA if you want to work in TV. And I did because I had no furniture because, you know, or no lease because I hadn't lived in New York for two and a half years. So weirdly, both on like a, a global storytelling level, but also on a real specific like nuts and bolts, like how to get a job level. Had I not lived in Mongolia for two and a half years, those things would have happened differently. So as much as like follow your bliss is a cliche, like I do think like live your life 
and then hopefully the things you care about will fall into place. Especially if you want to be an artist. Like if you're not living, if you're only like work, work, mm-hmm. work, like you – how can you tell stories? You know, yeah. how can you – if you're not living and having experiences and relationships and – A hundred percent. And I think what's crazy is I think politically <laughs> in this country we like to talk a lot about, you know – I mean we do. We make planes and weapons and and things that get exported but like – pretty much everywhere I've traveled, the thing that people know most about America is pop culture. It is our pop music. It is our movies. And as much as we, you know, love them and want to make them, it's not, you know, probably the movie that wins an Oscar that year. It's like Avatar came out when I was in Mongolia and I had this student, really smart kid, but who was obs- became obsessed with James Cameron. He's like, do you know, it took him this many years to make this movie and he did this and he did this. And like, this kid was so engaged and like he had to do all this work in English for the class. And so he did it in English. Like, um, but like, that's what travels. So the uh, sort of American pop culture microphone is the biggest microphone in the world. And why ask for it if you don't have anything to say when you get it? <laughs> kind of, you know? Yeah. Like, um, and again, not that like, I think anybody should be like, here's mass entertainment. Let me preach. But like, you know, Avatar, say what you will about it. Everything I saw in a American style movie theater in the capital of Mongolia when I was living in the countryside was the best movie ever. So Avatar was the best movie ever. <laughs> that summer it came out and I was in air conditioning and the smell of popcorn. But again, <laughs> it's a mass entertainment, but it is about something. Yeah. Right. And like we can debate. Or I not, love that movie. Cares. Yeah. I think I mean, it's a great movie. But again, like it. It's entertaining as hell, but it also has, has a something to say. Yeah. So I don't know. All right. Yeah. I know we're, we need to wrap up here, but I got one last question. Um, what do you do when you get stuck? Or I hate calling it writer's block because mm-hmm. I don't think it, that truly exists. But when you're stuck with a script, either for yourself or for work, like what are some things you do to help get you unstuck? Um, I think. It's interesting because, again, if it's (laughs) – deadlines are great for getting unstuck because if you just have to do something and you have to do it fast, I think the first thing to do is take – try and take off the pressure of it has to be perfect. Like write write a bad version. Like you just have to do something because sometimes – once you write the bad version, then you can go back and say like, oh, here's how to make this better or here's how to make this more interesting or funnier or or something. Um, And if you feel so stuck, you can't even take the note and do that in scene work. Like on a separate piece of paper, just write all the bad pitches, you know, Um, you know, write down all the wrong things. Because sometimes we get stuck going through, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this in your head and you don't do anything. Just write all the things. Be like, she does this, he does that, she does this, he does that. And, but it gets your brain moving in a way and, and it also feels productive. You're like, I'm something's going on a piece of paper. It's not the right piece of paper or the right thing, but it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then hopefully that can lead you to a good thing. And the brilliance of television hopefully too is if you if you work with good people and people you trust, when you are stuck, ask them, ask for help. Like call or someone on your staff or walk into the writer's room if you're in your own office alone and just say, guys, I am dying with this note or I – I can't see my way through this and spitball with a group of people. And if it's your own thing, if you have that trusted friend whose taste you can rely upon, say, scenario, this is what I'm struggling with, thoughts. Because sometimes even if they don't have it, having the conversation will help you get there. Bouncing ideas around. Yes. I love that. I love that too. Where can people find you online? 
<laughs> Plug yourself now. It's terrible. I um, am very much like a voyeur on the internet. I do a lot of looking and not a That's lot okay. of participating. That's okay. Do you have a Twitter or Instagram or anything? Um, I don't have a Twitter. Right. That's um, okay. Yeah. That's so okay. we've learned it's scary. It's yeah. It's I'm scared of Twitter. I know a lot of good people that have gone through a lot of bad things on Twitter. <laughs> That's like I feel like that is what especially writers. I feel like because yeah. writers have been using it as such a tool to be like, yeah, like let me express myself. But then yeah, I can't do the 140 care. Like I'm like. I, I think boundaries are good for creativity, but that's just like too, like. I also I have know. a weird, like even doing something like this and you guys are amazing. Like I have this like fear of like not articulating what I'm thinking in a really yeah. smart way and then, or even in a cogent way and then being like, oh my God, I sound like an idiot. So you <laughs> do not sound like an idiot. I think about first that. Of all. I, no, but, you don't but at in all. in terms of the internet, because people latch on to things and then and they so, blow and them it's out. forever. And yeah. I'm like, can we be a little more kind and compassionate to people mm. when, we're, like, the one of the, the guy that just got hired for SNL, like, he had mm. to apologize for something. That was I, I don't know what it was, yeah. so I shouldn't but he had, it had to apologize to do with for the racial, racial slur. So I don't yes, know the situation. I don't know either, it either. But I'm, but I'm like, knows? yes, you should apologize and you should grow and mm-hmm. become human. But also like we're human. Everybody makes a mistake. Like, where's this like it's okay to make a mistake? Yeah. You know? yeah. Like it's that it's okay cancel okay to, culture. I was yeah. watching something about that, like how we automatically like someone makes a mistake and we write them off and we're like, We're done with you, we wipe our hands. Finito. Um, and that's not a very human way to be. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's funny. I think some of that comes from um, there. I think there's so much behavior that has been unchecked for yes. so long. Yes, that I think does need to be checked. And yes. but I think the overreaction maybe is, or the risk is, if if people who need to be having difficult conversations stop because they're so afraid of saying the wrong thing, then then the ball's not going to move. So it's it's I think it's tricky because, again, I, I totally get like hell. Like if I'm in an underrepresented group and I've had to hear people say yes. crap about my yes. group forever, I do want to say call that out yes. and that like whatever. Yes. And that anger comes from a legit place. It's a really complicated thing. But oh, yeah, it's it totally super is. complicated. But let's have a conversation about it and like grow together. Yeah. You know, from yeah. these things, from these Absolutely. Things. You were wonderful. And, oh. and you sound so great. Many oh. great. One of the things that's really great is I remember when we first started doing this, because we like listen back to the episodes, we choose a quote, we do these things with it. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I do this. I do this. I do this. And you're, you, you, you start getting to a point where you are thinking so much about what you're doing that you're not engaging in the conversation. And that's really what people are drawn to. And it's not helpful, Mm -hmm. but I think it, for me personally, I don't know about you, Elise, it's given me an exercise in like being kinder to myself in the process of doing the podcast. Mm -hmm. Cause you're like, yeah, sometimes I say stupid shit. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and and that's why I was sort of like, (laughs) it was so funny because I got like, you know, Holly's email and I listened to your thing and I was like, they seem really great. And this seems really cool. But like, yeah, I think I have – there is something great about writing. And and, and I think and it, you can put yourself like, – you put your it's you out there, but it looks like it's not. Mm-hmm. And acting even too. It's like it's yourself but in the guise of a character. So I think I have a mu- I'm much more comfortable when I can pretend <laughs> it's sense. not me even though that it makes, is. That makes sense. <laughs> That's like the actors who like don't want to do interviews, right? Because they're like – They're super I introverted. Be, yeah. I can be a character, but I don't. Yeah, to be myself. Yeah, so 
So anyway. yeah. thank you for helping me grow today. Yeah, <laughs> we love so it. Much for thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, thank you for time out of your Saturday. Yeah. Absolutely. And and thank you for giving us such great tips. You had some really awesome tips that I think is gonna that I think is going to be very helpful for a lot of writers. Oh great. I hope so. So thank you. So. Of course. Thank of course. you so much. All right, thank you guys for listening. Bye guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.